0: Tonight's readings from Daniel 11, and that can be page, found on page 896 of the Church Bibles. It's a pretty long chapter, so I'm just going to read some sections from it. And we'll start at verse 2. So that's Daniel 11, page 896. Now then, I tell you the truth. Three more kings will appear in Persia and then a fourth who will be far richer than all the others. When he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will appear whose rule who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he's appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. The king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he and will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years, they will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north to make an alliance. But she will not retain her power, and he and his power will not last. In those days, she will be handed over, together with her royal escort, and her father, and the one who supported her. Verse 20. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, yet not in anger or in battle. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when his people feel secure, and he will seize it through intrigue then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and the prince of the covenant will be destroyed. Verse 29. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again. But this time, the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships from the western coastlands will oppose him and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant. He will return and show favor to those who forsake the holy covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation with flattery. He will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist him. Verse 36 The king will do as he pleases. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed for what has been determined must take place. He will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. Verse 45. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain, yet, he will come to his end, and no one will help him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: But let's pray for God's help. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar said this earlier in Daniel his, about God. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures for, from generation to generation. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Father, those words are difficult words for us finite human beings to to confess, to say. But they are comfortable words, Father. Because we know that you reign and you do as you please. And so, Father, we ask for your help now as we come to this chapter Please, Father, help us to understand what it says, and please, Father, help us to see its comfort, and we ask for your help in that, by your Spirit's work, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Daniel chapter 11, and that's on page 896. I forgot to say, if you could keep a, if you could turn to Matthew 24 now, um, we're going to go there a couple of times during a sermon, and... Um, It'd be helpful to get a bit of paper in Matthew 24 uh, at the start. If someone could shout out a page number. When they're there. 993. Great. Thank you. But we'll start off in Daniel chapter 11. Do you ever experience a kind of disconnect between what we believe about God and the experience of day-to-day life? I mean, us Christians, we believe incredible things, don't we, about God, that he's powerful, that no one can match him, that he sees everything, that nothing escapes his attention, that he's completely for our good in his Son, that nothing can separate us from his love, And yet, so often we look at our day-to-day lives uh, as a church and as individuals, and we often think that doesn't ring true. I mean, if God is who he says he is, and he feels the way he does about me, why is life so difficult for Christians? I mean, why can't I have an easier time at work? Uh, Why do I keep losing out uh, to people fighting in underhand ways for their careers? Why do I have to put up with the insults at college, the shame of, for being a Christian? Why do I have to feel that kind of wave of anxiety every time I'm at a party and I'm asked uh, about Christian ethics? Or, or perhaps you look around the world at other Christians and you wonder why life isn't easier for them if they have the God we confess we have. You hear of uh, Isaiah Beebe, a woman with two children who was imprisoned for eight years for alleged blasphemy, and you think, how can that happen in God's world? Or you're scrolling through your Facebook feed and you come across news of Christians uh, being marched out by IS to be shot on television, as it happened a couple of years ago, and you think, how can God allow that? Or perhaps you're here this evening and you're not sure you're a Christian or you're not a Christian. And one of the reasons you're not is because Christians don't look particularly remarkable. I mean, they just face a tough world uh, where hard things happen, like everyone else. And if God is who Christians say he is, why does he allow things to happen to his own people like that? Why is life not easier? Now, if you've ever felt that kind of disconnect between what we believe about God and the experience of day-to-day life, then we need to grasp the truths that sit in Daniel chapter 11. See, Daniel chapter 11 is all about getting our perspectives right as Christians, of understanding what life in this world will look like as we await Jesus' return. Now, how do we see this? Well, remember, we're in, uh, Daniel We've been there for a few weeks, um, and Daniel now is um, well into his 80s. And Daniel has seen God deliver one of the most longed-for promises in the whole Bible. We saw this um, last week in chapter 10, verse 1. Um, Cyrus is in charge, and Cyrus has said to God's people, you can go home. Exile is over. Now for us, um, that doesn't get us very excited, but for these guys, they would have had the party poppers going, and the champagne opening, because this meant everything. See, exile, you've got to understand, meant God's judgment, and so the end of exile meant the end of God turning his face away. And the exile was now over, the judgment was complete, and God brought his people back to their land. But here's the thing that Daniel 11 adds to the picture. See, judgment may be finished. The people may be forgiven. But life is not going to be easy for God's people in this world. See, do you see this? That even though God has forgiven his people, even though they're not at any particular faults, it does not guarantee an easy life. And Daniel 11 shows us that as Christians, if we're to stick with God, when trouble comes, then we need to immunize ourselves with three truths that this chapter teaches. Surprise, surprise, there's three points, and um, I do think this chapter splits into three. Um, You'll see them on your handout. These are the three truths I think we need to get in place if we're to stick with things when trouble comes. First of all, we need to see that chaos doesn't equal anarchy. Secondly, that persecution doesn't equal abandonment. And thirdly, success doesn't equal victory. Now, what do we mean by those statements? Well, first of all, let's look at um, verses 1 to 19. We're going to see that chaos is the experience in this world. See, in these verses, um, Daniel is given a movie preview of 350 years' worth of history. And one thing comes through very clearly in these verses which is that life is not going to be easy. Now, I'm afraid I'm going to give you a a helicopter ride this evening rather than a tour through the city, because there are so many details here that if you'd like to go home tonight, I'm uh, not going to be able to cover them all in detail. But what's um, helpful to kind of navigate us on our helicopter ride is to understand that it starts with 11 verse 3. At least the action does. 11 verse 3 describes Alexander the Great, but it's what comes after him that gets the air time. Look at 11 verse 3 and see what follows Alexander. Then a mighty king will appear, that's Alexander the Great, who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. After he has appeared, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will it have the power he exercised, because his empire will be rooted up and given to others. See, We've heard this over the weeks. So Alexander the Great, I think he conquered the known world by the age of 33. I've crossed that now, and that's not happened for me, so I'm uh, living with disappointment. But um, instead, uh, if you're not 33, you've still got a chance, guys at the back there. Um, And instead of a a son stepping into his shoes, as, as would normally happen, his empire was divided by four generals. And two of those four generals led empires that were hugely powerful. And throughout these sections, it's like a boxing match. We see two of those generals fighting against one another. One's called the King of the North, and one's called the King of the South. And it's talking about these um, two areas here. Um, The Seleucid Empire in the North, and the Ptolemaic Empire in the South. They're the two empires these generals led. Now, if that's confusing, don't worry. But um, I do want you to spot what's in the middle here. So that's... Sorry, all the colours have blended together. Um, The Ptolemaic ends about there, and the Seleucid ends about there as well, and that's all kind of desert. Um, Can you see what's in the middle? Anyone read that? You've got your glasses on? Yeah, Jerusalem, yeah. It's right where God's people have just returned. So Daniel's showing us that for the next three and a half centuries, God's people are going to be at the crossroads of these two superpowers, and neither one is going to win. See, at one stage, it looks like the south are dominant. 11 verse 5 says this, the king of the south will become strong. But one of his uh, commanders will become even stronger and he will rule his own kingdom with great power. But then years later, the power kind of tips over to the north. 11 verse 15, then the king of the north will come up and build siege ramps and will capture a fortified city. Then the forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Do you see the point? One gets powerful, fights the other. The other one gets powerful, fights the other. The other one gets powerful. See, see reading this chapter, it's, it's a bit like looking at the Premier League in fast forward. Imagine you could get the whole kind of Premier League table. I'm sure someone's done this. So I didn't bother looking. But you could, imagine you got that and compressed it into like a 10-second video. What would you see? You'd see teams go up, teams go down. Teams like Manchester City appear from nowhere and rise to the top. Teams like Blackburn, remember those, uh, start at the top and fall out altogether. Teams moving up and down, around and around. Teams like United stand around uh, fourth and fifth for the last few years, uh, to some of our frustration. Um, you would see that it kind of looks like chaos, doesn't it? Teams just going up and down. No one wins the Premier League in the end. And it's similar with these two empires. But instead, they're not kicking footballs but they're brandishing swords and bows. And the matches aren't taking place on the television in a stadium far, far away, but they're in the backyard of God's people. See, Daniel's told all this, I think, to show us that exile, the end of exile, is not the end of struggling. See, nations will rise and fall, and it will feel like chaos. Now, I was looking at this chapter and I thought, so what? Why are we told that there will be chaos? Why are we told that nations will rise and fall? But then I noticed and I remembered that Daniel was being told this before the event. Remember chapter 10 last week, Andrew took us through it very clearly. Uh, He showed us that this heavenly angelic messenger, possibly Jesus, came to tell Daniel these events before they took place. Now, I'm not going to get into the dating of Daniel. Um, Clive discussed this very clearly, I think, in uh, chapter 8. So um, do download his sermon if you've got questions on that. But I'm going to proceed assuming that this was written before, uh, like it's presented. So just imagine what this would do to you. Imagine having 350 years set out for you. Imagine knowing what's going to happen with Brexit. Imagine that. But imagine 350 years ahead Does it make it easy? Well, probably not. But does it make it more bearable? Yes. It makes it more bearable, surely, to know that these things are happening under God's say-so. See, what might feel like chaos and disorder is not anarchy. See, God is controlling these kings. He is holding the lead. See, as Christians, we mustn't confuse chaos with anarchy. We mustn't think that because our lives look chaotic that God is somehow out of control. No, God rules. Now, um, if you've got your finger in Matthew 24, well done. Uh, You're going to now get your reward because you can turn there very quickly. Um, Because I want to see in Matthew 24, but Matthew, don't leave Daniel 11, keep a finger in there as well. But Matthew um, takes these truths from Daniel 11 and um, Jesus applies them to believers now. And have a look at what he says in verse 6. You will hear of wars and rumours of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen. See, a lot of what happens in our world is really difficult to understand, isn't it? We have a very limited perspective on things. We can speculate, but we don't, on the whole, know why powers rise and fall. We don't know what the future holds. We don't even know what next week holds, let alone 350 years into the future. But we do know that we need not be alarmed, because there is one who does know. Whatever happens in our world, whatever suffering comes, whatever dark turn our lives take, it is not chaos. God is on the throne. Now, how can that be true if... um, when it comes to God's people suffering directly remember I mentioned the IS example in Isaiah Bibi. Is God really in charge when his own people are targeted? Well, secondly, in verses 20 to 35, please do turn back to Daniel chapter 11. Um, we see here a prediction, a terrifying prediction, that persecution is coming. See, um, when you look at the events of this chapter, you'll see on the timeline below, I've given you uh, an outline. Um, Have a look right at the bottom. You'll see that when you look at the events of this chapter, it's very interesting because um, the first 19 verses cover 350 years. But the next 20 verses, 15 verses, 35 minus 20, 15, um, covers less than 11 years. It's incredible, isn't it? Uh, 11 years. Why is that? Well, it's because of what happens in those 11 years. Now, the person you need to know about here is um, this guy called Antiochus Epiphanes. We heard about him a couple of weeks ago. I know he's not a household name, but he is if you're Jewish, because he carried out some of the most horrific persecution ever carried out on the Jewish people. Now, you may have heard um, this story before, but Antiochus came to invade Egypt Uh, which is called the South, in 11 verse 29, and uh, he'd done this before, but um, this time the Romans were there waiting, and uh, a Roman general went out to meet Antiochus with a letter from Rome, telling him, get out or you'll face war with Rome. But what he did was very clever. Um, He got a vine leaf out, uh, a vine branch, and drew a circle around Antiochus. He drew a line in the sand, apparently that's where it comes from, And uh, he said, "You have to decide. You can't phone a friend. You have to decide before you step out of that circle." And Antiochus decided to leave, with his tail between his legs. But he got revenge for that humiliation on his way back, and he used Israel as a punch bag to relieve his anger. Look at what he do in eleven verse thirty-one. He says this his armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifice. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. See, when Antiochus came to Jerusalem, it was horrific. He banned Jewish worship, the sacrifices had to cease, circumcision was prohibited, infants would be hung if they received the sign. He put a death sentence on everyone who held a Bible, but it didn't stop there. He constructed a statue to Zeus in the temple and sacrificed a pig, an unclean animal, on the altar. It's what Daniel calls the abomination that causes desolation. And interestingly, it's not just violence he uses. Uh, We're told in verse 32 that he uses flattery uh, to those who have violated the covenant. See, Antiochus knows that if you want to turn people away from God and get them on side, you don't just kind of squeeze them with violence, but you seduce them with the promise of an easier life. Come over, don't worry about all the God stuff. Don't risk death and isolation. Be part of my cultural movement. Be progressive, you might say. And many, we're told, won't be able to stand the pressure. But here's the thing. Remember when Daniel was being told this. It's before the event. See, God's people are told, so they won't be fooled when it happens. There's a German theologian called um, Helmut uh, Um It's a really um, interesting name, and uh, I can't really pronounce it properly. I'm sorry if you're German, and I've made a mess of that. But um, it's, uh, he's a, an absolute legend. He, um, he was a, one of the group of Christians that stood up to Hitler, uh, during World, uh, at the beginning of World War II. And uh, he writes in one of his books that he was um, uh, one of the few people in the German nation to actually read Mein Kampf. And because of that, he could see who Hitler was. He could see that he had a few screws loose. And because of that, he was kind of immunised, he says, against Hitler as he was rising to power. He could see who he really was. And it's similar here... God warns his people that persecution will come so they won't be surprised. So they won't be lured into siding with the enemy. And Jesus says something similar to Christians in Matthew 24, verse 9. Back in Matthew 24, he says this, verse 9. Then you will be handed over and persecuted, to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Do you see what Jesus says? Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm will be saved. See, God has not promised comfort in this life. He's not promised that Christians will always be loved. Often, we will be the punch bag for those opposing God. It's easy, isn't it, to do a kind of primary school theology, to to kind of think that if God says he loves me, that my life should go well, that people should like me, But Daniel chapter 11 shows us it's not that simple. We're not yet in the promised land. And Jesus shows us similarly. He loves us. He dies for his followers. And yet he shows us that persecution will come. But here's the thing. Daniel wants us to see that persecution is not abandonment because God is on the throne. I realize that is a, a heavy message and I want us to, be, as we move into our third point, to see some hope here. It's not just that these, this chapter is grin and bear it, endure the hardship, there is a glimpse of hope because what, is, what Daniel shows us right at the end here, that the success of these opponents does not mean victory and God wins. Now, if you thought all oh, that was complicated, verse 36 goes on to another level and uh, there's lots of um, opinions about it. But it's um, basically, it's a bit like um, you've jumped to the final scene in a movie. You know how if you've got a DVD or a Blu-ray, um, you'll go into the kind of scene selection menu. People still do that. I know you guys stream at the back, but um, our, us oldies, we, um, we go in and select a, a screen. Um, Imagine you could do that with Daniel 11. Uh, You would go in and you would see uh, lots of different squares playing away. You'd see Alexander the Great in one place and Antiochus in another. Verse 36 onwards is like you've skipped the last scene in the movie. And I've given that on the timeline there. Um, I've put uh, where those verses fall. I haven't given you a date for the end because I don't know. See here, God is shooting to the end of the story to show us what is to come at the end. And it's going to get a whole lot worse. See, there's going to be another king in verse 36, but this king is worse than what we've seen before. In some ways, he's like Antiochus, but he comes with even more terrifying power and an even more terrifying opinion of himself. Look at verse 36. The king will do as he pleases. He will exhort and magnify himself above every god and will say unheard of things against the God of gods. Verse 37, he will show no regard for the gods of his fathers or for the one desired by women, nor will he regard any god, but will exalt himself above them all. See, this king will do as he wants. He will make himself a god. Now, lots of people, especially on the internet, get very excited about these verses being about specific people in history. I had a very quick look on YouTube, and please, please, please don't do this. Um, You'll get into all sorts of trouble. But um, they'll be telling you, uh, I kid you not, that this prophecy is about the Pope, Hitler, uh, Mikhail Gorbachev, or get this, the United Nations uh, apparently is the final one. But believe it or not, the internet, I'm sorry to break this to you, isn't always right. And in fact, um, I think those people on YouTube could have saved a lot of time if they read the New Testament and saw how the New Testament takes these verses. Because when you look at the New Testament, you realize that actually this isn't predicting just one king like the United Nations or uh, Gorbachev, but it's a pattern of uh, of leaders who oppose God's people. Now, just to show you that, just very quickly, um, you see this in 1 John. 1 John writes this, Uh, Dear children, this is the last hour, and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. Do you see what he says? Not just one figure, but many have come against God's people. It's a bit like if you call someone a Judas. You're not saying that Judas has kind of come back or anything like that. You're saying that someone fulfills the characteristics of Judas. They fit his type, and it's similar here Daniel predicts that leaders will rise up who will be like this king, who will make themselves rivals to God and have no regard for God's people. Now, if that's too much and that's kind of fried your brain, please come back in here because the main thing I want us to see is what happens to this king in verse 45. Look at what happens to him. He will pitch his royal tents between the seas at the beautiful holy mountain yet he will come to his end and no one will help him see the king will look very successful god's uh, opponents of god's people will look like they've got the upper hand but it's only for a time and with two hebrew words his end comes and this verse reminds us right at the end of chapter 11 that one day the chaos the persecution the suffering will end. There will be a full and complete end to the exile. Now, how do we know that? How's that not just kind of wishful thinking? Well, it's because Jesus has proved it to us. See, after 200 years after Antiochus uh, made a desolation of the temple by setting up a statue to Zeus, another desolation was made, this time not in the temple, but to the temple the true temple, Jesus Christ. See, God's king came to bring in the exile, the return from exile that God's people longed for. But they treated him as an enemy. And the greatest act of desolation this world has seen was made as the Son of God was nailed to a beam of wood. But that very evil act was the very means that God used To defeat his enemies once and for all. And because Jesus paid for our sins, he has secured for us a future where no evil will stand against God's people. See, because of Jesus, because of his death and resurrection, we know there's a good ending. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 13, the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. The final day has yet to come. I don't know when it is. Uh, You don't know where it is, when it is. But until Jesus brings in that day, life, I'm afraid, will not be easy. But the message of Daniel 11 is keep going. There will be chaos, there will be opposition, but there will be an end. There will be an end when God will wipe every tear from our eyes. And there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. I can't say what the future looks like for Christians in this country. It's anyone's guess. And I certainly can't predict what it would look like for each of us. But I can say with certainty that because of the cross of Christ, it will not be forever. And the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Let's pray. Father, these are difficult verses and difficult truths for us to come to terms with. But thank you, Father, for showing us what life looks like now. And we pray, Father, that we would be like those believers who stood firm against Antiochus and many through the centuries have st- who have stood firm for the Lord Jesus against opposition. We pray, Father, we would not be squeezed, we would not be flattered, that, Father, through your enabling, you would enable us to stand firm to the end. And we ask in Jesus' name, amen.